Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, I've got Chris Edwards. Chris is an assistant professor with the University of Arizona's College of Pharmacy and a clinical assistant professor with the University of Arizona's College of Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine. After completing a PGY-1 and PGY-2 residency training with the University of Arizona, Chris worked as a clinical pharmacist in the emergency department of Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, then as a senior manager of clinical pharmacy services with Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, before moving on to a faculty role with the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. As a faculty member, he maintains a clinical practice in the emergency department at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson, and coordinates a pharmacotherapeutics course for the second-year pharmacy students and researches pharmacy practice in emergency medicine. Chris currently serves as a delegate to ASHP's House of Delegates representing the state of Arizona as director at large for the Arizona Pharmacy Association and as vice chair for the ASHP's Council on Education and Workforce Development. I really hope you enjoy this conversation I had with Chris. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can make sure to get the most updated information, especially when new episodes come out. All right, well, welcome back again to another episode. Today, I've got Chris Edwards. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about board certification today, but uh, before we jump into it, I want to let Chris know, uh, you should know who he is, but if you don't know, I'll let him introduce himself. Nah, you're too kind. You're too kind. <laughs> um, my name is Chris Edwards. I'm an assistant professor with the University of Arizona College of Pharmacy. My specialty area is emergency medicine. Um, I think that was Craig's nice way of just saying that uh, I've been around for a long time, getting kind of old. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've been practicing in emergency medicine um, basically my whole career, so about 10 years now. And uh, I've worn a lot of different hats in that time, been involved a lot with uh, different things within ASHP, um, doing some stuff at the, at the local level now as well. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be pretty involved with uh, the board certification uh, development process. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to come on and talk about it today. Yeah, great. So again, that's kind of what I was hoping to get your thoughts on and kind of update everyone to where the process is currently for the board certification for emergency medicine specifically. And of course, this exam is important because it puts emergency medicine pharmacists on the same level as a specialty as every other pharmacy specialty there seems to be, like critical care, ambulatory care, oncology, and whatnot. Um, but how do you see this exam and this certification um, advancing emergency medicine as a specialty? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think there's a couple of different uh, aspects to it. And I think one of the ways to think about it is sort of like the, the parallels that exist between pharmacy and the physician world, right? So if you look at sort of the path for um, emergency medicine physicians to develop as a specialty and develop their, their board certification, it was actually kind of a long road. So um, emergency departments in the 60s were totally different than they are today, right? So um, in the 60s, they would basically be staffed by, emergency departments would be staffed by interns and family practice docs and whoever else had a license and was willing to pick up a couple couple shifts down there. <clears throat> there wasn't really like a formalized training structure. There wasn't board certification or anything like that. But people started to recognize the need for that. Uh, again, like in the, in the early to mid 60s. Uh, in the late 60s, um, a few of the pioneers in emergency medicine formed ASAP. And they really started pushing on the need for uh, more formalized training programs in the form of residencies and um, the need for board certification. So the residencies came first. Early 70s, you started to see the emergence of the first emergency medicine physician training programs. Uh, and then in the mid-70s, you started to see um, 
the application for EM to be recognized as a specialty and to have a board certification exam to recognize that people had the knowledge and skills to practice as a physician in the emergency department. So they actually had a pretty tough road. So the initial application was rejected. It was a whole huge battle. And the first um, EM uh, uh, board of uh, the first group of delegates that were uh, certified as board certified uh, emergency medicine physicians weren't actually certified until 1980. Uh, which is actually not that long ago. Again, I feel kind of old saying that, but you know, 40 years ago, you know, like yeah. it's not ancient history. And so I think that, um, you know, if you kind of look at the parallels with pharmacy, um, we're sort of following a similar trajectory. The timeline's a little bit different, but, um, you know, up until, you know, maybe 20, 20 years ago, there was no requirement to have any sort of uh, specialized training to work in an emergency department, right? You could basically go down there if you had an RPH, if you had a, a pharmacy license, you could, and they had uh, a role for an emergency medicine pharmacist, you could go and potentially work down there. And I think right now we're sort of in that, that sort of middle area in that timeline where now we've got a bunch of people who have uh, some specialized training. Um, you've got a lot of different positions that have opened up, but where we're, we're kind of falling short is, you know, how do we know who should, who's got the skills and the, the, uh, knowledge base that's required to uh, practice in the fast-paced environment and make good decisions, and and so I think that um, that's how I really see it advancing practice. Right? Um, I did a little stint as a, a hiring manager um, at at my facility, and uh, one of the biggest challenges that I ran into is how do you know that somebody is competent to practice in that area? Right? Obviously, if you've got somebody who's done a residency and they've been practicing for a few years and they didn't get fired from their last job for not really being good at it, um, they're probably okay, right? Um, but if you've got somebody who, you know, has never practiced in that area before, or they've got, you know, maybe a couple years of practice experience there, how do you know that they're, they're really competent to practice there? Obviously, PGY2 training is one measure, uh, but not everybody did a PGY2. And again, if you look at particularly the people from, you know, our generation, I think, you know, the people who are getting jobs in emergency medicine, when we were finishing up residency, a lot of them just did PGY1s. And, and some of them didn't do residency training at all. And some of them had been grandfathered in. So I think that, you know, having this certification available um, will really allow us to determine, like, who meets at least that minimum standard of competency to practice in emergency medicine. So the I'm, I'm kind of glad you touched on that. So one of the things I was trying to figure out exactly is for those who are already in the ER, um, is this like should we look at it as a minimum competency step, or is this something that kind of uh, denotes an expert in the field, or uh, is it somewhere in between? That's a great question. I think I think the right I don't know I think the way I look at it is the minimum competency of an expert in the field. I guess uh, would be kind of <laughs> I like, like that a, answer. <laughs> yeah. So you know I, I suspect it's probably going to be similar to. Um, some of the other certifications in terms of when you're eligible, right? So um, I, I don't know for sure what it's going to be yet because BPS hasn't announced it. But you know, if you look at critical care, um, you can sit for the critical care boards uh, right after finishing a PGY2, or if you did a PGY1 and have a couple of years of experience in the field, or if you have no residency and you've been practicing for four or five years, I forget what it is. Um, but you know, I think that at any of those milestones, I think that's where you start to develop a level of expertise where you could consider yourself an expert. Um, but I think you still have, you still have a lot to learn, right? I still have a lot to learn. I've been doing it for 10 years. I learn new stuff every day. So I, I think that, 
but I think when I when I think about what this certification would mean and and what I think it would be useful for, I think it would be for people who are early in their careers um, to show that they have the level of expertise required to practice there. And for residency curriculum, obviously there's a pretty well-defined residency curriculum and standards that we have from ASHP. I would guess a lot of the same content is going to be covered on the exam, just uh, figured out how to package it on an exam. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so obviously like the cognitive domains are pretty easy to assess. Um, but we start getting into some of the hands-on stuff. It's, it's really tricky, right? I'm trying to think of like, how do you ask the question, uh, if you're in a trauma and the patient doesn't need any medications, do you A, stand there with your hands in your pockets, B, joke around with the nursing staff, or C, grab a warm blanket? I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you get at some of those, those more practical aspects? And, and that's where I think it gets a little bit tricky. Um, but again, when we did the uh, role delineation study to try to define what the, the knowledge domains were and the essential skills were for, um, uh, for this exam, uh, we did get into some of those practical things, like making sure that we're asking about um, devices and monitoring tools that are used at the bedside so that we included, you know, knowledge of smart pumps and um, arterial lines and end tidal CO2 monitoring and, and all these different things that, you know, are still sort of cognitive, but you also have to have some, some practical hands-on uh, knowledge, I think, in order to be uh, adept at them. So, I don't know, it's a little tricky, but definitely a good question. Hopefully finding the bougie in the department will be on the, on the exam. Absolutely. absolutely. We tend to be the ones running around looking for it. They're like, you know what? I know where it is. I wonder if we can ask questions about colloquial terms. Cause like everybody knows what a bougie is unless you don't. And then it's just like printed on the packaging as gum elastic, you know? Yeah. Um, I think I found it actually on the package once to prove it was there to someone. Nice. Uh, but yeah, I mean the, 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 like you said, like the, the hardest part is to this exam is going to be assessing I don't want to call them soft skills because they're not. They're essential to an emergency medicine pharmacist. But in the format that is used by BPS, it seems like that's going to be the biggest challenge is to appropriately not just ask the question, but assess the knowledge and the skills for an emergency medicine pharmacist. I'd be curious. I mean, obviously, we're still early in the phase of the exam development, but like, what are the things that have been at least brought up on on your side to address those? Yeah, that's a great question. So honestly, that hasn't really been brought up yet. So I guess this is a good time to kind of talk about where, where we are in the process. Um, so the, the first step that I got involved with, and, and it was really one of the early steps in, in this uh, process was uh, the role delineation study. I think I mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. So uh, a large group of us got together. I think there were about 14 emergency medicine pharmacists from all over the country. Um, and there was even a, a pharmacist from Canada there. And we met with a couple people from BPS to talk about, you know, what are the essential skills and knowledge um, that's required to practice in an emergency department? Again, you know, early career people who have the expertise required to, to, to serve there. And so that was sort of the first step. Uh, over a couple of days, we kind of hashed that out. There was a lot of back and forth, really making sure that the verbiage was appropriate. Um, and then that got sent out um, to basically everybody. So we blasted it on um, ACCP, ASHP. Um, I think they sent it out to basically any listserv they could get it on uh, in order to get feedback on, on that rule delineation study to, to really hammer home like, okay, if we do this, what do we want to know? Like, what are we testing? And then once that um, got feedback, it got sent to the board. 
And the board reviewed that to determine whether or not they thought it was different enough from other practice areas to um, essentially uh, for the board to request a petition to recognize um, emergency medicine as a specialty area. And so that was sort of the next uh, phase. And, and we finished that uh, last year. We, um, a small group of us um, got together and it was basically um, representatives from ASHP, which is how I got involved, and then representatives from ACCP um, worked with a consultant who was hired by BPS to develop this position uh, petition, which was a 437 page document that covered everything, right? Um, everything from, you know, what makes emergency medicine different to what the job market looks like? Is there going to be a demand for people with this uh, certification to how many people do they think we're going to sit for this exam? Not only immediately, but also in the next 10 years, um, basically just, you know, really looking at the market forces and then looking at, you know, um, how much support we had from physician groups, from nursing staff, from other, you know, uh, higher level pharmacy people, other organizations, uh, basically, we, we put all of this information together into this petition, sent it off to BPS, and then the board deliberated on whether or not they would they would uh, approve that petition and move forward with it as a specialty. So that approval happened um, fairly recently. I think it was, um, I don't remember the exact date. I'm sorry, I'm going to make you do a little editing here. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to say the wrong date and have it pop up on there. Um, but basically, well, I can add it in later on what the exact date is. Maybe it might yeah, be on the I, test too. It might. I think it was September 2019, but I don't want to. I don't want to say it <laughs> wrong and then be wrong on you know in perpetuity. Um, I think it was September 2019, but it, it was approved recently. And uh, where we are currently is um, BPS has put out a call for people to serve on the initial um, inaugural specialty council uh, to develop the exam. And so the, the exam hasn't been developed yet. And I think that the work that's done by that council is really what's going to hash out, okay, how do we, how do we assess these things that have been identified as um, essential pieces of knowledge or essential skills for an emergency medicine pharmacist? You know, how do we actually test this? And, and you know, how do we form a question around this concept and stuff? And so I think that you, know, you ask a really good question, how do we get at those um, you know, hands-on skills without doing some sort of a wet lab, which I don't think anybody wants, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, it, it's challenging. And, you know, when I think about the soft skills as well, like some of the, like a lot of that is bedside compounding, you know, can you make, can you make a levofed drip in under a minute? Like, how do you test that on an exam? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, of course, about it, I think it was a little bit more than a year ago when you were talking about that rule de delineation. I mean, that's kind of when I got a, at least more involved with it. And I mean, I was probably more critical of it than I needed to be, but I think that was probably the main obstacle in my mind to get over is like, how can you really do that with the current model that BPS has? And I mean, I don't know if there's a way that you could have both meaning that both test all the people that need to be tested and then also test the way that it needs to be done. Cause like you mentioned, like if you could do a hands-on, I don't want to say a mega code or maybe more of a written test with, you know, practical answers or kind of like a board review. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would take a lot of manpower or person power to be able to pull that off and then evaluate those tests. Uh, and then, you know, I, it, there's just there's there, there there seem to be too many obstacles in order to get that accomplished 
with the number of people that needed to be accomplished. Um, but kind of like you explained that it's, while experts sure can get it, and maybe these are the experts at the beginning of their expertise, I mean, that context helps a lot in terms of putting it on the, the I guess, the whole grand grand scheme of where, where it actually needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I guess, you know, the, the problem with, one of the limitations of, of something like this is it's not really, it's not a substitute for hands-on training, right? And, you know, again, looking at the parallels between sort of pharmacy and, and physicians, um, when board certification for emergency medicine physicians became available, they only granted like a 10-year grace period for people who had practical experience to be able to sit for the boards. And then after that, they required residency um, in order to be eligible to sit for the boards. Because even with a, a more um, practice-based, practice, practice hands-on examination or oral boards or something like that, you're still not going to be able to see if the patient, if the provider can put in a central line, if they can do more, more of those hands-on things. And so really those skills are best taught and assessed during residency training. Um, but it's, it's almost impossible to do it with a, a multiple choice exam. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we'll ever get to a point where um, it's an absolute requirement to have uh, PGY2 under your belt to practice in an emergency department. But I think that given the increase in the number of training programs, you're going to see an increase in the number of, of people who carry the certification. And I think it's probably going to be harder. Um, for, it's going to become increasingly harder for people to get a job in an emergency department without uh, residency training, um, you know, probably over the next 10, 15 years. And so I think that eventually you'll start to see these people who, you know, um, develop their skills uh, in a more practice-based fashion rather than in a formal residency training program, I think you'll probably start to see those folks phase out or get the certification. And then any new folks will probably have um, residency training under their belt. Because I agree, like, that's really, that's really the only way I can think of that you can really assess those soft skills or those hands-on skills in a variety of settings and, and sort of over a continuum of, of, you know, a year of training, so. Yeah, and just, I mean, hearing you say that too, like, is even the exam the right assessment tool for that or a board certification to say you are completely competent in every conceivable facet of the job? <laughs> and maybe that's not even the right scope, right? Like perhaps yeah. it is just speaking uh, to the fundamental skills, some fundamental knowledge base and using, you know, jobs and expertise and whatever else you want to throw out that should be on a CV, for example, as kind of identifying your, that's where you identify your special training, your special skills, your expertise and in that setting. So, I mean, having that context and that frame, that definitely helps me think about it in a little bit of different light, for sure. And I, I definitely appreciated, you know, uh, your sort of other view of it too. Like, I remember when you, um, when you put up that blog post, I was like, oh, wow, like I didn't even consider these aspects of it. So I really did appreciate sort of that, that alternative view of it too, because I just went into it like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to spend all this, <laughs> like, this is, this is good stuff. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely appreciated like, you know, sort of that, that other context. And, and I agree that there are definitely limitations to this. And, um, you know, but at the end of the day, I think really the people, there are a couple of groups that I think are going to benefit most from this. And it's hiring managers for sure are going to benefit from, you know, being able to easily determine like, okay, is this somebody that I would trust to work in my department? Um, 
and then you know patients will, will probably benefit as well because you know that you're getting you have somebody there who knows what they're doing um, which i think is going to be good um, and then honestly i think it's those those folks who don't have the pgy2 under their belt to to really claim that they have a specialized knowledge to uh, essentially create parity with uh, um, their colleagues who do have residency training. So. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the folks that don't have a PGY2, I mean, no fault to their own. There was, I mean, especially when we did residencies, we we're one of, or two of 12, I think, in, in the it. country, right? <laughs> yeah, there weren't yeah. many. It's, it's certainly exploded since then, but still, I mean, there's not enough spots for the demand that there is. So allowing those individuals that just find themselves on the outside looking in on match day gives them an opportunity to kind of level the playing field in, in the in the job landscape. And to be honest, as I don't know if it's been your experience, but after a couple of years, maybe three to five years of practice, if someone's been putting in the effort, you can't tell whether or not they've had a PGY2 or not. So this can really benefit those folks that do put in that extra work to, to stay up to date and stay involved and, and, and do the best job that they can. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a totally viable path towards being an EM pharmacist, right? So if you have, if you have a PGY1 and you're, you're fortunate enough to land a job in an ED somewhere, I, again, like you said, the people who, you know, go home, they research the things that they're unfamiliar with and, and they ask a lot of questions and stuff like that. They can absolutely get up to that level of expertise that, that you would expect somebody to have working as, as a specialist. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, uh, definitely a viable path towards uh, specialty. So. so did you get any inside information, I guess, on what other specialties are kind of coming down the, the pathway for board certification or are, are we like, you obviously had a huge, almost 500 page document to <laughs> work with them. So I don't know how much time you had to poke your head into different offices, uh, I guess, so to speak. Yeah, it was all Zoom calls and uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, there wasn't, uh, it was actually like a surprisingly formal process. Um, so I, there was some, you know, some conversations that weren't, you know, directly on task and stuff like that, but they, they play, the people from BPS, you know, played their, their cards a little close to the chest in terms of other projects that they had going on and things like that. If I had to venture a guess, just sort of looking at what's already been out there, um, what's already been approved and what's out there and sort of where there's interest and growth, I would say specialty is probably going to be uh, an area that we, there will be a specialty certification for uh, probably in the near future. If I was to venture a guess, I, I think that there's a lot of growth in that area. I think that you're going to continue to see expansion in there. Um, and it's a, it's a very different practice area than we usually see. Um, that would be the big one that I would say that is lacking at this point in time. I don't know. Any other, do you have any thoughts? Are you, do you see anything on the horizon where you're like, Hmm, should probably have some specialty certification. For no, that. I mean, the, the ones that we see like in practice-wise, I think they're primarily covered. Um, I don't know, yeah, like informatics, but like yeah. at what point do you just say you're probably better off getting like a computer science degree from <laughs> a college or yeah. uh, who's to say we're the, be the right people to, you know, I don't know. I, but like obviously there's more and more technology coming along uh, and integrating into practice that someone with specialty training in terms of how to manage that, how to navigate it. Uh, and then also make sure like the pharmacotherapy is accurate. Cause I know that's probably one of the, the biggest challenging components to it. That'd probably be relevant um, at least. And then like you mentioned, 
adding credibility to something that you wouldn't necessarily have to second guess the content and the programming behind if you knew it was from say a board certified i don't know how many c's can they throw into critical care maybe throw some <laughs> non c like computer related terms uh, i don't know but um something along those lines you could say oh, okay the, the content the clinical stuff should be should be pretty solid Oh man, if you get a board certified critical care computer specialist pharmacist, that's the season is going to be out of control. <laughs> Although I would like to see, no pun intended, uh, the, <laughs> if, so, some some way, and my residents, they, I see them rolling their eyes every time I bring them up, but like Elon Musk is the most fascinating person to me. So like something with like that. Neuralink, if you could figure out how to incorporate drugs into Neuralink and then... Uh, make a board certification for that. I'd be I'd be down with that. I'm into it. I'm into Perhaps it. one day work with Elon Musk. We were doing intrathecal vancomycin the other day. It's, it's not quite there, but <laughs> <laughs> it's close. It's close. Yeah. I'm sure those implants are going to get infected at one point in time. And they're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. Potentially, if you can just have them, yeah. If you can just basically have them be uh, drug eluting neurolinks, then uh, you know. There you go. There you Beautiful. go. Mind blown. But anyway, I I. I really appreciate you taking some time today uh, and, and kind of filling in some of those knowledge gaps that at least I had with uh, the board certification. Um, so just a few closing points. So A, what's like the timeline that you think the exam is gonna be out at? Are we looking at, well, it's 2020 now, so like 2022 maybe? That would be my guess. So the um, development of that, that specialty council to put together the, the exam, has actually been delayed a little bit by COVID. Um, I think that they were supposed to announce that a, a few months ago, um, but they still are processing applications and, and haven't even announced like who will be on that board. Mm -hmm. And then once that board convenes, there's a lot of work that needs to go into the development of the exam, validation, things like that. So I think 2022 would probably be the earliest I would expect to see it. Um, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said, yeah, 2022, if this gets approved, this is when we're gonna see it. It may be delayed a little bit just because everybody's got getting pulled in a million different directions right now. Um, but I, I think that's still probably a pretty realistic target. And then uh, do you drink uh, coffee or Red Bull energy drinks? Yeah, um, both, all of the above. So I usually oh, uh, I usually start my day with, uh, with coffee and then... Uh, Okay, I'm gonna probably get in trouble for saying this, but uh, hopefully my hopefully my boss doesn't listen. So I've developed a strategy where um, I now have I'll have a monster. The way my day works is I usually uh, I go into the emergency department and I work basically a, a four hour shift five days a week to get my twenty hours in. Split funded faculty with the college, so twenty hours of time and all the rest of my time goes towards you know working on academic endeavors for the most part. But when I uh, now you know, COVID hit, I don't really have a reason to go into the College of Pharmacy, especially covered in COVID germs. So now I come home, I take a shower, I have lunch, I drink a monster with lunch. And then I take a 20 minute nap and wait for it to hit. And then I wake up and I am like ready to go, man. I can stay, I can stay in my office working until seven, eight o'clock. So uh, that's <laughs> sort of funny. My, my kinetics wasn't practical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, I wish I had that. I mean, I do miss the academic kind of schedule uh, but i mean there's pros and cons to it as i'm sure you experience and then so and uh what's your most recent book that you read or at least favorite book that you read recently hmm well the only book i've been reading recently is basic skills and in interpreting laboratory data so i got nice. um 
Yeah, it's it's pretty fun. I got the opportunity to uh, serve as the editor for this. And uh, oh, very nice. Yeah, kind of. I said yes um, as soon as they asked because I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like nobody's gonna yeah. ever edit a book again. Absolutely. Not realizing that what meant that I was gonna have to read a textbook a couple times. Um, <laughs> so most of my reading now goes into uh, editing this textbook. I haven't read anything for fun really since the pandemic started. I have like four books on my nightstand that are you know, a chapter or two in, as soon as I start reading it, I'm just passed out. Probably because the book wears off by the time I get up there. <laughs> well, maybe you can layer in some some good books with your uh, laboratory interpretation textbook, which, I mean, that's that's pretty incredible being able to edit something like that, but, and certainly tedious, but that's that's terrific that, to hear that you've kind of got an opportunity like that too. Thanks, yeah, it, it's definitely a cool opportunity and and, I am learning a lot. Like there is a lot that goes into that, um, you know, the, the laboratory techniques and, and all these different specialty areas that I just, you know, I'd heard of, but I wasn't, you know, very familiar with. Um, definitely building, building my knowledge in that area uh, basically every day. So super fun. It definitely makes sense to know that or makes sense to understand why Peter Parker's editor was always pissed off is <laughs> editing is not always the most fun thing to do but anyway i really enjoy you taking some time again uh if there's any other details we can include down in the show notes later on uh you know if uh there's anything else that we can talk about too maybe we can get you back on the podcast a little bit later when when the board certification is a little bit closer to being done yeah absolutely man i really appreciate the opportunity to come on and and chat with you it's uh really good to see you i haven't talked to you in a a little while um because all the conferences are virtual now so yeah it's just um Yeah, thanks for the invite, and it's great to kind of catch up. Terrific. Thanks so much. Thank you.